Thank you all for coming. We're going to start now. Now, my name is John Clark. <coughs> it's been my pleasure to know Stephen since 2014, when he came to take up the lectureship in Asian Art at the Department of Art, History and Film in this university. He's brought along great knowledge in his own special fields of Chinese art, chiefly on Qing imperial gardens, but also with wide knowledge of Chinese painting. His book with Richard Strasberg, 36 Views, The Kangxi Emperor's Mountain Estate in Poetry and Prints, launched recently, is a great contribution to understanding how the visualization of gardens interacted with painting, genre, and style, and with imperial poetic representation. Since coming to Sydney in 2014 by Stanford, a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellowship at Kazai in Washington, and since as an assistant professor of Chinese art history in various US institutions, Stephen has not merely made his name as an excellent art history teacher, it has also been my fortunate experience to collaborate with him and others on three important projects, which I'll briefly outline. The first project was the preparation, application, and receipt of a very large grant from the Getty Foundation under the leadership of Professor Mark Ledbury to link up art history with younger art historians and critics in Southeast Asia. This has come to fruition this year with the presentation of final research reports, and we now look forward to the edited volume from Power Publications, which is under Stephen's co-editorship. The second project will come into the open in August with the exhibition, production of essays, and catalog publication of the university's collection of modern Chinese prints. Uh, do look forward to that. At the end of August, we have a collection of modern prints, which uh, Stephen has edited the catalog for. And the third achievement is the organization with Olivier Krischer at ANU of a conference on the current state of art historical research in Australia, and teaching, I should say, which would also result in a co-edited special issue of the Art Association of Australia and New Zealand's Journal of Art this year. This is a formidable list of activities and concrete achievements. Let us now enjoy Stephen's presentation of his own research, which no doubt will display his customary scholarship, friendly approachability, and wit. Thank you very much, John, for that very kind introduction, um, which makes me feel very busy. Um, and I can't promise much wit, but I'll try. Um, I uh, am very pleased to be here tonight at the University of Sydney. Thank you to the Chinese Studies Center for hosting and organizing this event. As John mentioned, I just recently, um, at the risk of spurking my own book, uh, just recently published a book uh, with Harvard University Press and Dunbar Noakes called The 36 Views, um, The Kangxi Emperor's Poet, Mountain Estate and Poetry in Prince, which is specifically about a book of, uh, of views of the garden that I'm going to be discussing tonight. Tonight's talk comes from a combination of my current book project um, looking at broadly the garden, the mountain estate to escape the summer heat, uh, under the Kangxi Emperor's reign, and then uh, a future project looking at its afterlives, um, or sort of reception in various periods. So without further ado, in the late summer of 1702, the Qing Emperor Kangxi and his entourage descended upon the Roha lower camp, 
a small settlement about 175 kilometers northeast of Beijing, which you can see here in this center circle. Um, although Kangxi has hunted and toured in the area almost annually for the last 20 years, this year's visit was different. The emperor and his advisors, who included officials from the Board of Works and two European surveyors, spent 18 days in Ruha planning the construction of a substantial shingle, or traveling palace, to which the emperor might retreat from the heat of Beijing summer. On the 21st of December, the emperor issued an edict in which he outlined the ideological motivations for his summer palace. Quote, Our dynasty has secured the mandate of heaven and initiated a new epoch. Raising our head, we commit to heaven's will. Rain and sun each come in due course, the farmers' labors sprout bountifully. The common people live in peace, and all regions are in harmony. Uh, there is already a 20-year history of martial training in Mulan, which is the Qing imperial hunting grounds north of uh, Ruho that we saw a moment ago. And while cherishing those from afar and nurturing all peoples is that which occupies our thoughts and memories, there is still no place in this region where we may comfortably pass the night. At present, following the request of ministers and officials, it is appropriate to begin the foundations for a traveling palace in Ruho so that pacification of the northern borders may be achieved. It is ordered that the Board of Works and the Imperial Household Department should study famous gardens in north and south closely, provide draft plans, construct models, and submit them for imperial review. Over the course of the next decade, the builders of the Qing court did just this, constructing an imperial park palace of unprecedented scale and complexity at which Kangxi spent several months each summer and fall for the remainder of his life, hosting elite visitors, governing, hunting, fishing, and enjoying the refreshing natural surroundings. The physical complex they created, Bi Shushanzhuang, or the mountain estate to escape the summer heat, as it was ultimately known, as well as parallel landscapes produced by the court, this monumental painting by, uh, portrait by the painter Lung Men, a book combining scenic views and lyric poems by the emperor, the 36 views of Bishu Shanzhuang, as well as numerous imperial essays, poems, and stellar inscriptions, reflected the political and ideological needs and situation of the Kangxi Emperor. Ultimately encompassing nearly 1,400 acres, or roughly three times the area of Centennial Park, Bishu Shanzhuang grew, changed, was neglected, and rebuilt over the subsequent 300 years. Following the Kangxi Emperor's death in 1722, the site went through a period of neglect until it was resuscitated by Kangxi's grandson, the Qianlong Emperor, in the 1740s. Over the next half century, Qianlong fundamentally shifted the architectural program at the site, both within and beyond the garden walls, as it played host to some of the most important events of his reign. In the centuries since Qianlong's death, the park's fate has been less clear often seemingly tied to the fate of first the empire and then the nation. Scholars have conventionally focused principally on its realization in the last decades of the 1700s, collapsing the decades-long course of its development in subsequent post-history into a single, seemingly definitive state under Qianlong. Modern restoration has reinforced this vision of a completed landscape seeing earlier states under Kangxi as intermediate stages in a single plan, rather than as fully conceived garden and palace landscapes in and of themselves, while erasing or reframing subsequent events, both destructive and restorative, 
in the creation of a timeless, fixed Bisher syndrome. This evening, I would like to present an alternative reading, one that begins with Kangxi and his legacy. Through this, I hope to stimulate interesting questions about the nature of landscape and memory in the Qing court, about how others have approached Qing imperial landscapes, and by extension, about how landscapes are often thought of more generally. Beginning with an introduction to the early development of the site under Kangxi, we can begin to see how he conceived of the site, particularly in terms of its relationships to the political and ideological concerns of his realm. I will then suggest that rather than reading Bishu Shandong as a single garden fully realized under Kangxi and brought to completion by Chenlong, in many ways, its later development, use and consumption depended heavily upon the precedent set by Kangxi. For Chenlong, Bishu Shandong often embodied his grandfather. And, e and even while fundamentally altering the landscape to reflect a new vision of emperorship, the Chenlong emperor continued to tie his own actions in space and time to those of his imperial ancestor. Finally, I would like to test the proposition that the history of Bishu Shandong may be read as a reflection of the rise and the fall of the Qing itself. As we will see in some snapshots from the 19th century, there are monuments when this, there, excuse me, there are moments when this seems almost prophetically true. Yet those who consumed Bishu Shandong in the 19th and 20th century, and it was by then far more landscape consumed by different publics than it was one used by the emperors, chose to valorize various moments in the park's history in ways that may be as much about their own narratives as they were about Bishu Shandong itself. First, however, a, perhaps a brief uh, introduction to the Qing and the contemporary Kangxi scene is appropriate. The Qing dynasty, and forgive me if you already know all this, last of the imperial dynasties in China, was ruled not by Han Chinese, but by Manchus. Upon conquering the Ming with a multi-ethnic empire, the Qing court was faced with the challenge of integrating diverse populations and territories while developing political and social institutions capable of governing them. The magnitude and variety of this challenge is readily evident in this map, which compares the Ming territories, China proper so-called, which appear in red, with the final extent of the Qing by the end of the 18th century. Qing rulers thus faced not only the, the challenge of territorial conquest, but also of territorial integration, of joining territories so-called within and beyond the passes, encompassing lands and peoples not only foreign to China proper, but traditionally viewed as the barbarian other. The challenge, in other words, was to create a fundamentally new empire, the Qing, out of multiple parts, each of which already had its own distinct identity. The first decades of the Kangxi Emperor's reign were largely concerned with securing his own power and completing the initial conquest of Qing territory. By the end of the 1680s and early 1690s, these various conflicts had drawn to a close, however, and the Kangxi Emperor began to turn his attention to what we might call soft power, imperial tourism inspection, of which one small detail from a long series of hand scrolls is shown here, a revitalization of the examination period, or examination system by which the imperial state recruited scholars into the civil service, and an increasing emphasis on cultural production within the court, including printing, painting, garden building, and other ideologically redolent activities. The Kangxi Emperor, excuse me. Oh yes, 
Sorry. The Kanchi Emperor's original mandate for the construction of Bishushantra, from which I read a few moments ago, thus places the site rhetorically at the heart of these various contemporary concerns. With the empire now largely at peace, Kangxi ultimately envisioned Bishushantong as a sort of essentially and exceptionally Qing landscape, one that reflected the various elements and aspects of the empire, drawing them together in the landscape and creating a specific site denoting the envisioned whole. Although the exact course of construction at Ruha is somewhat unclear, the focus during the first phase of construction from 1703 to 1707 was on the lakes and islands that lay at the center of the park. This, I'm sort of clumsily showing this area here, but not so much the stuff at the bottom as you'll see in a moment. This initial process of construction involved diverting the Wulia River, which is this guy over here, diverting it here, uh, to feed the lakes, uh, the park's water systems dredging that series of lakes at the center and using the earth excavated from those lakes to form the backbone of the area, a dike known as the Geofungus Path and Cloudy Embankment. The complex of buildings on the largest of the lake's three islands, commonly known as Rui Island because of its auspicious shape, was probably the earliest architecture to be built in Ruhu, completed in the center in the spring of 1708. Kangxi marked the occasion by inviting a number of important officials to tour the site in midsummer. Among them was Zhang Yushu, an erudite scholar who left behind a lengthy account of his travels that year, a record of traveling at the invitation of the emperor. Through this account, a picture of the earliest iteration of Bishu Shandong begins to take form. Arriving at Ruha on the 19th of July, John and his fellow officials waited nine days before being offered a personal tour of the so-called rear park, led by the emperor himself. Entering through the main gate, can you see those arrows at the bottom? Watch those, they'll move. Uh, entering through the main gate, Kangxi led his guests over a small mountain, descending to Rui Lake. Leading the group across a small bridge and onto Jifungus Path and Cloudy Embankment, the emperor, quote, ascended into a pavilion and turning to address the official said, this dike has the form and appearance of a sort of linger fungus. John continued, quote, the dike was built in a winding unbroken chain. An offshoot from the path at the very center divides into three small pools of land, each the site of a scenic spot. It is in truth comparable to a sort of auspicious fungus. Proceeding forward, Ali and Moore we came to the place in which the emperor stayed overnight. Beyond the gate, in the midst of the residence, stands the imperial couch. Surveying the broad and distant expanse, a thousand grottos and 10,000 ravines appeared together in a moment." Close quote. Oops, did I just do that? Yeah. From the emperor's private quarters, um, the Zhang and his fellow officials were led on a lengthy process through the park, progress through the park palace. With the emperor at its head, the group enjoyed many of the garden's most scenic spots, crossing the lake by boat, lingering along the edge of the Garden of 10,000 Trees, which is this area up here, that's the Garden of 10,000 Trees, visiting the hot springs that may have first attracted the emperor to the Ruha Valley, which sit right over here, and hiking along one of the several gorges that extended upward into the mountains to the, in the western portion of the park. The visit to the garden involved entertainments as well, including theater performances and the banquet. 
Zhang's account prompts a number of observations about the emperor's conception of the traveling palace. First, in a number of ways, Zhang's description bears out the emperor's original instructions quoted above, that the designers study famous gardens of the north and south in planning the site. Although the direct quotations from famous gardens that eventually make their way into the Shishandrons under both the Kangxi and Qianlong emperors, such as a reimagining of Suzhou's surging waves pavilion, although these have not yet appeared, references to famous places signal an architectural and mnemonic engagement with the landscape of China proper. More specifically, it is clear that in some respects, the emperor envisioned the park as a private garden analogous to those of Chinese literati, with himself playing the role of its owner. Among the many places Zhang identifies, he describes 16 in particular as views, or jing, a term applied to the scenic and emotional focal points in a garden's design. The sites of richest sensory experience, the designation and naming of which were key parts of the garden building process in China, a moment in which the owner invested something of himself in the landscape. In the ensuing years, the Kangxi Emperor would designate 20 more views for a total of 36, thus the 36 views mentioned earlier. These were ultimately made into a book, which you've now heard about, that combined images and poetic descriptions to offer the reader a private tour through the Park Palace comparable to the one given to Zhang Yushu and his colleagues, while evoking the painted albums commissioned by owners of private gardens, such as the Ming official Wang Xianchen, whose garden of the artless official was recorded by the painter and calligrapher Wen Zhengming in the mid-16th century. Further, Kangxi himself contributed to the reading of Bishu Shandong's private garden through the nature of his interaction with the guests in the landscape. Although much of the circumstances of Zhang Yushu's time in the imperial retinue occurred within the broad historical norms of imperial audiences, the tour Zhang describes was substantively different in setting, activity, and subtext from other far more ritualized forms of interaction between emperor and subject. Zhang's account conveys a sense of intimacy between host and guest, as the emperor shared a personal landscape marked by favorite itineraries pleasurable activities, even a view of the imperial home. When Kangxi addressed his guests, it was not from a site of authority, but from a single garden pavilion. There he spoke not of rulership and power, but of garden design and an auspicious landscape. All this suggests that Qing imperial gardens, perhaps particularly under the Kangxi emperor, served in part as less formal sites for imperial performance and engagement, offering an alternative to the grand environment in a rigid protocol of the Forbidden City. At the same time, Zhang's description of three small pools of land set in a large lake suggests that the plan at the heart of the traveling palace followed historical imperial garden building practices and may be understood as part and parcel of broader efforts during the Kangxi era to establish the dynastic legitimacy of the Qing in traditional and historic terms. Known generically as a quote-unquote one-pond, three-mountain design, the design of Rui Lake and its islands had its roots in the Zhenzhong Palace Gardens of Emperor Han Wudi in the second century BCE. In his pursuit of immortality through elixirs and other magic, Han Wudi created a surrogate paradise in his garden's primary lake, known as Taiya Pan, containing three islands in imitation of Penglai, Fangzhong, and Ingzhou, mythical gardens of the immortals believed to lie off the eastern coast of China. Taiya Pond became 
the model for many subsequent imperial gardens, including ones in the Tang capitals of Chang'an and Luoyang, and in the successive capitals of Jin, Yuan, Ming, and Qing, Beijing. And here you see um, an overlay map, which is not very useful for the present discussion, of, of Jin, Yuan, Ming, and Qing, Beijing. And the gardens that we specifically want to focus on um, are particularly the islands in um, what are now, what's now known as Beihai Park. But the three seas islands um, are, are, were originally in conception. Beihai was originally a Taiyip Han model, three mountains in one lake garden. Um, or still was even in Qingdu, not originally, but still is. For the, for the Kangxi Emperor, garden building represented the opportunity to follow this historical line constructing landscapes that were clearly associable with legitimate regime, regimes of the past. <clears throat> Although Kangxi Islands did not bear the names of the sacred isles, indeed, during his period, they didn't appear to bear any names at all that I can tell, Zhang's description of three small pools of land, in truth comparable to a sort of auspicious fungus, signaled <coughs> that the emperor's audience nonetheless understood the reference. The auspicious fungus, or lingzhe, the new leaf form from which the central island and lake took their names, and the islands of the immortals, modeled in the garden plan, all drew on Taoist imagery to encode wishes for longevity. <coughs> the auspicious fungus, or lingzhe, the ruey form from which the central island and lake took their names, and the islands of the immortals, modeled in the garden plan, all drew upon Taoist imagery to encode wishes for longevity and symbols of wisdom and refinement in the traveling palace's design. Much like the bat-shaped tiles that line the eaves of many Chinese roofs, seen in the lower right, which bring good fortune through a pun on the syllable fu, both the word for good fortune and the word for bat are pronounced fu. The landscaped lakes and islands of the traveling palace conveyed the properties of lingzhe fungus, particularly longevity, and the Rui scepter, a symbol of sagacity and authority. Construing the park in this manner is supported by the only extant image of the site during the period between 1708 and 1710, which you've now seen quite a bit of, Lung Mei's view of the Ruha traveling palace, which exhibits a number of features that expand upon auspicious and sagacious associations, particularly with Taoism and landscapes of retreat. In particular is Lung Mei's use of the so-called blue and green manner, originating in, originating in the Tang, if not earlier, by the Song period, blue and green was clearly associated with depictions of immortal realms and, by extension, paradisical retreats, such as that described in the 5th century poet Tao Yanming's Peach Blossom Spring, an allegorical poem in which a utopian realm offers refuge from the chaos of the Qin conquests. And the painting on the right is not a depiction of Peach Blossom Spring, but mo most, I don't want to say most is maybe an exaggeration, Many, most depictions of Peach Blossom Spring also employ blue-green landscape style. Um, during the Kangxi period, the blue-green palette and associated stylistic features, including precise renderings of architecture and the presence of deer, crane, and other auspicious animals, became core elements in the Qing court's depiction of itself in literal and metaphoric context, a development in which Lung Mei played no small part. <coughs> An example is seen in the Kangxi Emperor's Southern Inspection Tour, 
a monumental depiction of the emperor's 1689 tour recorded in 12 long hand scrolls by Qing court artists, including Longmen, which set a precedent for portraying the Qing territory itself in blue and green, and thus for presenting the Qing as a prosperous empire at peace, a paradisical realm on earth. Both the immortal's realms in Peach Blossom Spring might seem contrary to the Kangxi emperor, emperor's emphasis on active and attentive governance, as they suggest a retreat from the problems of the world, a disengagement with the times. Yet framing the Ruha traveling palace in these terms allowed the site to function as a metaphorical landscape for the Qing itself. If, rather than seeing the site simply as a place to which the emperor might escape, it is read as a metonym for the dynasty, then Bishu Shandong becomes a landscape not only of place, but also of time. In the peach blossom spring of the Qing, the Kangxi Emperor's audiences have escaped from the chaotic and perilous world of the Ming. The Ruha of Longmei's traveling palace embodied this vision of empire, framing the Emperor's new traveling palace as epitomizing rather than endangering a harmonious realm. The second major phase of development at Ruha under the Kangxi Emperor was completed in 1711 an occasion marked by a hanging of a gilt bronze plaque displaying four characters in the Kangxi Emperor's calligraphy above the main gate of the park, reading Bi Shu Shanzhong from right to left. Perhaps the most significant addition to the site's architectural landscape during this phase was the Palace of Propriety, or Zhenggong, a substantial axial palace complex that replaced the buildings on Rui Island as the formal halls of state and imperial residence at Bi Shu Shanzhong. The inclusion of a formal axial palace was unique among the mature gardens of the Qing, and its presence at Bishu Shandong underlined the significance of Confucian modes of governance as another aspect of Kangxi's vision of the site. The strict hierarchies of Confucianism and their architectural analogs were not the only modes of authority developed during the final phases of Kangxi-era construction, however. A number of Buddhist temples were erected in 1708, and Qing political economy, reflecting the fact that Qing political economy was closely intertwined with Buddhism during the Kangxi era. A stele erected in 1713 upon the completion of the Temple of Universal Benevolence, one of these two large temples which combined Chinese temple architecture with Lama's Buddhist, uh, monastic practice uh, erected by Kangxi during, uh, during the period, offers a starting point for understanding how Buddhism in the early Qing state was manifested at the site. Following the conclusion of treaties with Mongols over the course of the 1680s and 1690s, the frequency with which Kang the Kangxi Emperor entertained Stephalites increased. As we saw in his original memorial on building at Ruha, Kangxi's approach to, quote, pacification of the northern borders involved, quote, cherishing those from afar and nurturing all peoples. In the dedicatory stele erected upon the completion of the Temple of Universal Benevolence, the emperor will further elaborate on this theme in language targeted at both Chinese and non-Chinese audiences. The 52nd year of the Kangxi era was my 60th birthday. The multitude of Mongol groups descended, and when all reached the gates of the court, they performed their congratulations, and without consulting on common language, prepared statements sincerely pleading their desire that I construct a temple in order that I might pray for the blessings of good fortune. Be kind to the distant and help the near. From ancient times this has been doctrine. In the past, when Mongol groups descended, the three kings could not rule them, 
and the five kings did not, five emperors did not help them. Yet now there is no differentiation between center and periphery. Over the past hundred years, we have come to practice Buddhism devoutly, such that there is no second way. Guarding the laws and institutions of the empire carefully, we do not dare to neglect our duty. Without awareness or knowledge, a peaceful age has taken form, for which I am daily joyful. Reflecting their loyalty, I am respectful of that which they request of me." Close quote. Here, the Kangxi Emperor framed relations with Mongols in terms that incorporate elements of historical tributary relations while also engaging the Confucian rhetoric of benevolent and humane rule. The Mongol elites who traveled to express their good wishes on the emperor's birthday were participating in the biannual obligation of Chaojin, or coming to court. In return, the visiting nobility requested the construction of a great temple in which the emperor could celebrate Buddhist rites to their benefit. The emperor's generous agreement to build this temple offers an interesting cultural juxtaposition. In so doing, the court continued to develop an imperially sponsored ritual infrastructure paralleling the one that already existed in China proper, but based on the Lama's beliefs of Mongols, Tibetans, Jurchens, and other steppe people. Moreover, the Kangxi Emperor demonstrated Qing rulers' commitment to practice Buddhism devoutly, indicating to Mongols that there was indeed no second way. While instituting uh, the physical and ritual manifestations of practices generally intelligible to Chinese constituents. Considering the various elements discussed above, including geographic quotations, the juxtaposition of imperial and scholarly identities within the garden, invocation of Taoist and Confucian references in garden design, Buddhist temples engaging aspects of both China proper and Inner Asia through architecture and audience, respectively, and many other elements, a distinctly Kangxi image of the Rufa Traveling Palace in Bishu Shandong emerges. The Kangxi Emperor's construction at Rufa takes the form of a sort of multi-vocal landscape, one that speaks simultaneously and harmoniously in multiple architectural and cultural languages. In this respect, the landscape did indeed resemble an empire in miniature, as the dynasty itself represented a conscious drawing together of historically disparate territories, of China proper with lands traditionally associated as beyond the pale to create a new and distinctive empire, the Qing. All of these strands were drawn together in the 36 views of Bishu Shandong from which we have already seen a number of images today. Woodblock printed in 1714 in small parallel Chinese and Manchu editions, the work may have originally been conceived of as a gift for imperial and official elites in honor of the emperor's 60th birthday. The work paired images of the gardens with texts ostensibly composed by the emperor himself. First, a brief prose description of the physical environments, followed by a poem through which the emperor offered insight into his personal state of mind. In combination, text and image gave the impression of a tour led by the emperor, along which he shared access to personal spaces and private thoughts and feelings. A tour, furthermore, from which the fortunate few who received the book as a gift were able to access at will, which is more than anyone could have said of the garden itself. Much may be said about this important work, one of the most significant productions of the Kangxi court, not only for the information it provides about Bishu Shandong or the image it conveyed of emperorship and authority under Kangxi, but also for its influence on artistic production in later periods. It is the latter issue that I wish to emphasize in charting the transition from Kangxi to his successors 
For while the physical landscape of Beecher Sondorn itself has changed repeatedly over the subsequent centuries, the 36 views represents a largely stable yet fertile landscape for those interested in consuming or reusing the image of the Kangxi Emperor. During the brief reign of the Kangxi Emperor's son, the Yongzheng Emperor, uh, the Yongzheng Emperor, Bishu Shandong was largely neglected. The latter preferred his garden in suburban Beijing, the Yunlingyan, which is now known as the Old Summer Palace, and is mostly a park uh, in, uh, in northeast, uh, northwest Beijing, and never went to Bishu Shandong as emperor. Added to the passage of time were the ravages of fire, which destroyed a portion of the original Kangxi construction on Rui Island. Upon his ascension to the throne in 1735, therefore, the Qianlong Emperor, who loved Bishu Shandong as much as his grandfather had, was faced with the need for renovation and rebuilding it. The radical expansion of the site they ultimately undertook, however, where am I? Oh, did I move the slides? Oh, I did, I'm sorry. There's supposed to be a slide that shows you how much construction occurred. Uh, in between the two, and the answer is you went from roughly 250 individual architectural structures, halls, etc., temples, bridges, like buildings, to roughly a thousand between Kangxi and Chenlong. So it really transforms the site. The radical expansion of the site that he ultimately undertook, however, extends beyond this practical influence and re reflects new and substantially different conceptions of emperorship and the Qing from those held by Kangxi. Within the walls of the park, the emperor added a second palace, three Buddhist temples, and a large library complex housing a copy of the emperor's encyclopedic archives of Chinese culture and knowledge, the imperial commission collected works of the four treasuries, or Siku Trenshu, or as well as numerous other halls, pavilions, and kiosks dotting the hills. Perhaps more profound, however, was the large investment in explicitly Buddhist architecture made by Qianlong. His contributions to the outer temples including Puning, Shumi Fusho, and Puto Zongcheng Niao. And you see Shumi Fusho on the right and Puto Zongcheng on the left. Uh, uh, fundamentally altered the physical and symbolic landscape of Roha. Oh, here's, I got the slide that I was looking for. There it is. Comparing renderings of Bishu Shandong in 1713 at the completion of Kangxi's construction and its final state under Qianlong, it is evident that the latter's roughly 50 years of continued construction so radically altered the landscape of Bishu Shandong as to essentially render it entirely new. And just to sort of help you with what you're looking at, what you're looking at here is a very um, rough and ready version of a map, a sort of more complex mapping project that I'm working on. It takes the plan that you saw, the sort of green tinted uh, topographic plan that you saw, scans it in black and white. Then on the left, I've deleted all the buildings that are post Kangxi, and then on the right, I've highlighted them in red. So you get a sort of sense of how sparse the architecture was during the Kangxi period, how center, focused on the center of the garden it was, and then how sort of much larger and much more expansive the sort of spread through the site was under Chenlong. It is evident that the latter's roughly 50 years of continued construction so radically altered the landscape of Bishu Shandong as to render it essentially new. It was not always so, however. After assuming the throne in 1735, Qianlong waited six years before traveling to Bishu Shandong. In the year he finally went as emperor for the first time, 1741, Qianlong published a new version of Kangxi's 36 views, including his own matching verses. While the original album of paintings upon which Kangxi's woodblocks were, uh, woodblocks were based no longer survives, 
at least six later versions produced by Chenlong's order do, including three albums, two sets of hands, fans, fans, fans housed in ornate bespoke cases. I didn't show you the cases, but that's an example of a fan on the left, and a version without Kangxi's poems that was sent as an imperial gift to the court of Louis XVI in 1765, which is now unexpectedly in the Manchu collection of the Johns Hopkins Library in Baltimore, for no apparent reason, but anyway, there it is. Further, in 1753, Chenlong designated 36 of his own views, which were rendered in a unique album collecting all 72 views of Bishu Shandong. In many regards, these activities seem analogous to those that existed, or the relationship in these activities seem analogous to that which existed between Kangxi's auspicious design of Bishu Shandong's central lakes and the islands of Hanwudi's Taiye Pan, as each Qing emperor directly modeled a new, distinctly contemporary landscape on a historic model. For Kangxi, as we've seen, the motivation was dynastic legitimacy. Was the same true for Chenlong? It may well have been. Chenlong's father, Yongzheng's ascension to the throne was shrouded in the persistent cloud of suspicion following the succession crisis that occupied much of the last 20 years of Kangxi's life. Yongzheng was only officially declared successor upon his father's death. When his name was revealed within a sealed casket, Kangxi had hidden in his private quarters, which is not really a good way to make the, the succession process transparent. For Qianlong, establishing both his own legitimacy and that of his father was thus an important political exercise, and he consistently cited imperial precedent for a range of activities. Bishu Shandong figured prominently in these efforts. After the initial six-year wait, Qianlong traveled to Ruha almost annually for the remainder of his realm. He not infrequently framed his own activities there in terms drawn from the Kangxi past, and as we have seen, he greatly valued the ideological model offered by the 36 views. There is a particular case involving both the physical and represented views of Bishu Shandong that helps illustrate what it is I'm trying to describe. In the winter or spring of 1730, while still Crown Prince Hongli, the future Qianlong Emperor penned a long inscription about visiting Bishu Shandong in 1722, the last year of Kangxi's life, at his grandfather's invitation. The inscription was appended to the album that containing the original paintings of the views, which at the time was held in the imperial collection. Some years ago, when I was 11 years old, I humbly experienced the overflowing love of our imperial ancestor, Emperor Sheng Zuren, that, that our imperial ancestor, Sheng Zuren, felt for our imperial father. Emperor Sheng Zuren specifically ordered me to attend upon him in the palace. From dawn until evening, I served him and pleased him, never departing from the proper way. In the fourth month of that year, I traveled with his majesty to Ruho in order to escape the summer heat. Altogether, there are 36 scenic spots there, and not one did we fail to tour and inspect. I listened to his majesty's sage instruction, a great favor bestowed upon me. Although I, homely, was still young, our imperial ancestor favored me above all. He often looked upon me with the love of a parent. In the winter of the seventh year of the Yongzheng period, I respectfully read our imperial ancestors' imperial poems on the 36 views of Bishu Shandong while leafing through the paintings, recalling the period in my youth when I pleased his majesty by waiting upon him, as though it were yesterday.
Elsewhere, Qianlong fixes time at Bishu Shandrong and the bestowal of his grandfather's blessing that it represented to a particular compound, known under Kangxi as Wind in the Pines of Myriad Ravines, which was the sixth of Kangxi's 36 views. And Qianlong went so far as to rename that hall the Jiantong, or the Hall of Commemorating Grace. Thus, Qianlong intimately wove the story of his own legitimacy, and by extension, that of his father, into both the physical landscape of Bishu Shandrong and its parallel pictorial and textual one. The only problem, and this may not come as a surprise to those of you who have read ahead, there is no record of this visit in Kangxi or Yangzhong sources. This does not necessarily mean that Qianlong fabricated the event, or even that he exaggerated its significance to the Kangxi Emperor. Instead, it serves to draw our attention to the Qianlong Emperor's rhetorical use of his grandfather's Bishu Shandrong as opposed to his own, in which he invokes the memory of the Qing imperial past in the specific physical context to reinforce the legitimizing links Qianlong sought to create between himself and his grandfather. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the terms for understanding Bishu Shandrong changed, both within and beyond the court. Qianlong's son and successor, Jia Qing, continued to use the park regularly, traveling there 19 times over the course of his 25-year reign. Less auspiciously, however, he also died in Roha, likely of stroke or apoplexy, uh, though the precise cause is not known. That probably should have been struck since stroke and apoplexy are essentially the same thing. Um, but anyway. Um, increasingly, however, uh, interestingly, however, there is a widespread belief that he passed after being struck by lightning. I do not know the origin of this legend, nor have I seen any reliable evidence to support it, um, though I think that Weibo will tell you that this is true, and so will other Chinese types of websites. Uh, but it, I don't think it's true. Um, but its invention is telling in terms of the shift I wish to outline briefly in the last portion of today's talk a shift from a court-driven narrative to one articulated by various audiences external to the court, and from one of Qing triumph to one of dynastic decline. Following Jia Qing's death in 1820, Bishu Shandrong went largely unused by his successors, the Daoguang and Xianfang emperors. This period, between 1820 and 1861, marked the onset of major conflicts that contributed significantly to the weakening and ultimate collapse of the Qing. In October 1860, the Second Opium War drew to a close when Anglo-French forces entered Beijing. The Xianfeng Emperor retreated to Bishu Shandong with the court, attempting in vain to manage negotiations with the Europeans from afar. Two weeks after entering the capital, European soldiers looted and substantially destroyed the largest of the suburban Beijing Imperial Gardens, Yuanmingyuan and Jingyuan, the latter of which is now known as the Summer Palace. Xianfeng died 10 months later, having never returned to Beijing. Despite gr growing debate about the state of the dynasty, the fitness of Manchus for imperial rule, and how China ought to deal with pressures from both within and without, the late 19th century saw a small but significant vogue for reprints of high Qing imperial landscapes, particularly the 36 views of Bishu Shandrong, a market facilitated by the introduction and spread of lithographic reproduction. Some editions were clearly intended for Western audiences. Most, however, seem to have been intended for Chinese, not only because they remained untranslated, but also because they often combined works of related interest, adjusted the format to make them more portable, 
and de-emphasize the size and quality of the images, all of which might indicate an expectation that the text would actually be read, rather than simply collected as curiosities. In one case, the publishers, not the one you're looking at here, um, the publisher publishers went so far as to drop even the images and reproduce only the emperor's poems in a pocket-sized edition. The existence of these works would seem to suggest that whatever the opposition to the Qing among various factions in the late 19th century, a certain portion of the population continued to valorize the emperors of the 18th century, perhaps particularly Kangxi, channeling them in part through the monumental landscapes that bore witness to some of the dynasty's most significant moments. Ultimately, of course, the Qing fell in 1912, and with it, Bishu Shandong's reason for being seemingly disappeared. Our two strongest images of Bishu Shandong from the early 20th century come instead from invaders of different sorts, Japanese imperialists and European explorers. After establishing the puppet state of Manchukuo in 1931, which ostensibly re restored the last Qing emperor, Pui, to the imperial throne, the Japanese government set about surveying the various natural, cultural, and historic resources within their colonial territory, including the region around Bishu Shandong, known as Jehol. Among the scholars who contributed to these efforts were as an architectural historian named Sakino Tadashi. An employee of the Japanese colonial office, Sakino traveled to Northeast China in 1933 and 1934. There, he photographed Bishu Shandong in great detail, publishing a four-volume set of his images upon his return to, China, to Japan. He died the following summer, but before passing away, he presented a brief history of the site and its cultural value in a public lecture at the Peers Club in Tokyo. The story Sakino related to his elegant audience was at once largely factual and highly hagiographic. Sakino presented a history of the Qing that was hung on the architecture of Bishu Shanghong, the fate of the garden mirroring the rise and the fall of the dynasty. He opened by describing an almost primordial landscape, a region once, quote, covered by a thick forest, where wild animals and game, such as tigers, panthers, deer, and rabbits, were found in large numbers. Emperor Kangxi undertook the construction of his summer palace here. From that day on, throughout the Emperor Qianlong's rule, this palace played a very important role in the history of the empire, close quote. In Sakino's view, the architecture of Bishu Shandong was a quintessential monument to the power of the Qing. The outer temples constructed by Qianlong, for instance, are so huge and magnificent that nowhere in all of China or Mongolia can there be found anything approaching their grandeur. The reign of Qianlong, Emperor Qianlong marked the zenith of the Qing dynasty, just as that of Louis XIV marked the culminating age in France. With his death, however, the prestige of the Qing dynasty began to decline. According to Sakino, although Bishu Shandong was little used during the 19th century and essentially abandoned by the court after Shen Feng's death in 1861, the precincts were nonetheless carefully maintained as long as the Qing held power. With the fall of the Qing came neglect, however. The new Chinese government used some of the former palaces as administrative buildings, allowed others to deteriorate, and pillage both the architecture and the forest for lumber. Indeed, Sakino told his audience, quote, it is said that one particular building was raised and the materials used to build an opium refinery in the park. Many images and buildings of Buddha were sold or carried away, 
while expensive furniture and manuscripts written by the emperors Kangxi and Chenlong and many valuable treasures were also carried away." Close quote. Here, of course, Sakino is not speaking simply of architectural preservation, but a century of national preservation as well. In his formulation, while even a weakened Qing state could manage to preserve the monuments of imperial power in a manner suited to the dignity of the court, the contemporary nation insulted its own historical memory by selling relics of its glorious past for a passing sum, while erecting a factory for processing opium, emblem of Western imperialism, at the very heart of the Qing. For Sakino, therefore, the restoration of Bishu Shandong ought to be a central project for the Manchu Guo state. Quote, I firmly believe that the city of Jehol is the most beautiful spot in this vast country, Manchu Guo, and with the improvement of the means of communication with the outside world, it will become a favorite place for visitors and tourists, and will be looked upon in much the same way as Nikko of Japan, Agra of India, and Alhambra of Spain." Close quote. Like Chenlong and Kangxi before him, Sakino and the Japanese government that he represented thus saw legitimacy through the reestablishment of a past imperial landscape, asserting a claim to the mandate of heaven through the recognition and restoration of the gardens at Ruha. At almost, let's see if this works. Oh, it's so exciting for that. Ha ha! Um, at almost precisely the same moment, the product of another exploratory enterprise, that of Swedish adventurer Sven Hedden, presented an image of China through Bishushanjong to audiences on the other side of the world. Hedden traveled through Inner Asia in the late 1920s, collecting art objects, architectural elements, um, stories and photographs of the sites and people he encountered. In addition to publishing several books, Jehol City of Emperors first appeared in 1933, his encounter with contemporary China, which he freely mixed with an imagined imperial past, was distilled into an installation at the Century of Progress exhibition in Chicago that same year. There, and again at the 1939 World's Fair in New York, Hedden and his collaborator Gusta Montel presented the Chinese Lama Temple, Patawa of Jehol, a reconstruction of the Golden Pavilion that sits at the center of the monumental Putozongchanyo. Inside the temple was an exhibition of Buddhist objects collected by Montel, including bronzes, ritual implements, and sculpture and textiles. Monks performed Buddhist rites, read sutras, burned incense, and otherwise recreated the life of a monastery for their imperial audience. There's some thought that these are actually, not some thought, but in all likelihood these are actually actors playing monks. And at some point there is an image of a man spinning a prayer wheel, but he's spinning it in the wrong direction. So unless somehow the film got reversed, it's clearly a, a monk who doesn't know much about the prayer he's saying. The purpose of the installation was to capture the memory of China's most glorious moment, presumably to counter the image of its fading, diminished present, and preserve it for the West, who might learn from and take pleasure in the heights of Chinese civilization. In Hedden's words, quote, when the Kangxi Emperor's formal palace, the um, Excuse me. When the original golden pavilion of Jehol has become a pile of crumbling ruins and its glory is no more, its faithful replica, the Chinese Lama Temple, will preserve for generations to come an awe-inspiring conception of the days of the Emperor Qianlong." Close quote. For the authors of the various essays in a small booklet accompanying the New York exhibition, the Qianlong period, particularly viewed through the dual lenses of Ruha and Buddhism, 
represented not only the zenith, oh, there we go, there was the pyramid, um, particularly viewed through the dual lenses of Rohan Buddhism, represented not only the zenith of the Qing period, but of Chinese history. From the return of the Torgets to the McCartney Embassy of, of 1793, the, te quote, the temple recalled the days when the members of the emperor's court were summoned to magnificent festivals and victorious celebrations are to hold, close quote. Here was a reconstruction of, quote, the most beautiful and exquisite house of Buddhistic worship in all of China. Inside, the objects Montau collected, regardless of their actual provenance, became of the Genlong period, as, quote, the reign of Genlong, who delighted in splendor, marked the final great rise of all the arts of China, close quote. Although the context was, of course, very different from that of the Tokyo Peers Club, the narratives constructed by Hedden and Sakino bore many similarities. In the rise and fall of Roho was reflected the fate of the Qing, and by extension, China of today. For Hedden, the glories of the past were unfortunately in the past, and they must be preserved for the world by the West, lest they be lost forever. They have not been lost, of course. Fish and Shandong has been greatly restored over the last 30 years, at once preserved and transformed for use by and for the people of a new time and a new regime. One portion of the Kangxi Emperor's formal palaces, the Zhongong, now houses an exhibition describing the history of Fisha Shandong in terms of the narrative of so-called national humiliation, the site of both the glory of the Qing and the Western assault upon Chinese sovereignty and dignity. A much larger than life statue of Kangxi in military attire now seems to stand guard over the park, seated in the center of his very first palaces on Rui Island, the same spot in which he declined to ascend the throne in front of Zhang Yushu and his other guests some 300 years before. For this narrative, Xianfeng could not have died more conveniently. In reclaiming the Ruha Pass for a contemporary cause, Chenlong could not have done better. Today, I have sought to present a brief introduction not only to the history of Bishu Shandong, but to the history of the memory of it as well. This is not the only way this story could have been told. I have attempted to open a particular view onto the site, one I hope offers a view, a window, not only onto the garden itself, but onto those who built and used it, those who neglected and restored it, and who lived and died there, those who recalled another time through its lakes and islands, and those who told of themselves in their own time through its hills and valleys. Just as there is no single Bishu Shandong, so too is there no single memory of it. Instead, the stories we tell of the past, though rooted, we hope, in fact, are also stories of ourselves, a truth, I believe, to which the garden, forever in flux, is particularly sympathetic. Thank you. <laughs>